with y'all. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy verses 12 through 20, so go ahead and turn your Bibles there. My name is Bruce Kendrick. I'm the Director of Life Initiatives here at Watermark, and uh, that means I've got the very best job on staff because I get to oversee our efforts with vulnerable children and families uh, who are in our community and helping restore uh, moms who have had their kids removed into foster care and are going, hey, I, I want to parent my child. I just need help. And uh, we get to wrap around those moms and dads and help restore those families. And then for those of you who've opened your homes and given of yourselves through foster care or adoption, I get to be involved in that. Uh, I also oversee our ministries to women and men with unexpected pregnancies and past abortions and uh, get to help lead the charge with this great group of people that are intent on ending abortion, uh, not 100 years from now, but tomorrow, uh, that we'd be a part of bringing salt and light into our community. And so uh, they asked me to start by sharing a picture of my family with you, which is just absolutely dangerous and the wrong move, but when you're told to do things, sometimes you just do it. And uh, so here's a picture of the family. Uh, we've got nine kids. So anytime you ask somebody to get up on stage and introduce the family, it's like, we could be here till one if you want me to go through all nine of them. But five are adopted, four biological. My wife and I both have red hair, so you can guess who the biological ones are. Uh, just trying to keep recessive dominant here. Um, that's all right, you'll catch up. Some of you, the genetic jokes just don't click uh, initially. But uh, I want to start by just asking the question uh, with a little bit of levity. Have we lost our minds? Just chaos, right? Uh, man, news from this weekend with the notorious RBG passing away, the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, just sort of adds to it. And um, I, I want to ask, like, what do you see when you look around? How is your heart doing? How are you responding? Have you just lost your mind in this whole thing? Because, you know, it's like 2020 just came in here and just did not have any sense, did it? Uh, and 2020 better get its act, 2021 better get its act together. Because uh, <laughs> this has been nuts. I didn't know murder hornets were a thing, but we got them, right? Um, and I, I don't want to go through this more than I have to, but I'm going to say it now. I'm going to say it a few more times just so I can meet the quota of the number of times we're allowed to say COVID in any given conversation. So just to get it out of the way, COVID, 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 pandemic, COVID, pandemic, and one more COVID. Great. We don't have to talk about it again. I get that it's serious, but every conversation that I've been in since March has involved that word. And uh, personally, it could take a rest um, for at least the next 30 minutes. Uh, obviously, politics and partisan journalism is sorted at an all-time high as we continue to get spun up in that. And then uh, any parents or students in the room? Yeah. Hey, uh, can we just collectively agree to pull the guy into a room, whoever came up with synchronous and asynchronous learning, and give him a solid throat punch? Um, oh, learning's great, right? I mean, the remote learning, but why? Why well, can't even spell asynchronous, much less pronounce it? And so um, here's the thing, is I think in the midst of all that's going on, uh, there are some of us that aren't just losing our minds, we're losing our faith as well. 
And uh, what's troubling about that for me is I see some of us just put blinders on and go, you know what, Bruce, I don't want to change the status quo. I, I need things to kind of keep moving forward the way they were because I, I, I had my life managed. I had my sin managed. And now it feels like my anxiety's spinning up and I didn't really have to trust the Lord that much before because I could manage all this stuff. But now it feels like maybe God's not as control as I thought he was. And just spoiler alert, he's still in control. And then there's some of us who, like we started social distancing back in March or, you know, whenever, and that's now turned into social isolation. We've got a better relationship with our phone than we have with any other human being on the planet. And friends, when I think about this year and when I think about all of these different things that are going on in the world, the thing that God impresses upon me most is not chaos, but opportunity. That as Christians, as people who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit and who have the truth and the richness of the gospel, that we would turn around and go, hey God, thanks. Man, I, like there's a whole year's worth of topics that could introduce the gospel in a conversation and God's like, yeah, pick one. Pick any of them. And yet we're at risk of shipwrecking our faith, as Paul's going to talk about in 1 Timothy, we'll see. But Paul was acquainted uh, with that reality of what it was to have the boat basically fall apart from underneath your feet and be waiting in the sea, looking around at all the other bodies, waiting in the sea, panicked, looking at each other. And so Paul writes the, the pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy just after he gets out of house arrest, which he had been under for two years in the city of Rome, where he had appealed to Caesar that he might share the gospel. And on his way to Rome, he gets shipwrecked onto the island of Malta. It's Acts 27. And there are those of us who are at risk of shipwrecking our faith and missing our purpose in Christ to speak mercy and grace in our homes in our marriages, in our communities, in our workplaces, students in your school. And it feels like God's just like teed us up for gospel conversations. And we've got the blinders on. And so as I mentioned, we're, we're in this pastoral epistle and you are at our weekly pastor's conference. In the event that you didn't understand kind of how this worked, you, you don't pay me or our band or to come and entertain you for 30 or 45 minutes. If we're honest, there are much better ways for you to be entertained. But we don't do ministry to you. We don't do ministry for you. We don't even do ministry through you. We do ministry with you. That you're a pastor, a minister of reconciliation, an ambassador of Christ for your home and your neighborhood and your community and your workplace and everywhere that you go. What an incredible opportunity we have. And Paul's just going to unpack some things for Timothy and remind him as he's working with the church there in Ephesus and as they've kind of lost their way, as they've had some false teaching come in, as Leventhal mentioned last week, some mythology and some genealogies that got mixed into the gospel. And Paul's just going to remind Timothy and he reminds us that God's mercy and grace makes us new. It motivates us to worship him. And it moves us to fight faithfully. 
And so let's take a look at 1 Timothy, starting in verse 12. We'll just read through the whole passage together and come back and unpack it. It says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. I think the first thing that, that Paul's going to tell us here is mercy and grace make us new. Mercy and grace make us new. In verse 13, he says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Paul's not just like kind of trying to make a point and maybe exaggerating his sin a little bit. Paul stood over men while they were murdered. So if you've got that on your list, okay. But, but Paul's saying, look, I, I'm not just exaggerating this. He stood over Stephen while he was being stoned, and Stephen cried out in Acts. Stephen says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And Saul stood over Stephen and said, yeah, no, we know exactly what we're doing. We're murdering you. And Paul had previously, in the letter, sat here and, and kind of made this hierarchy of sinners, right? And so I, I don't want to give you some idea that I don't think is theologically true that says all sin is equal, even though all sin separates us from God. But he says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He goes on to say, I was the worst of sinners. Now, when you adopt a child from foster care, uh, you get a box that looks a lot like this. Um, and in this box is basically all the notes and assessments from doctors, um, some of its information that, uh, that you get about the child's family, but they hand it to you as a pr prospective adoptive parent and allow you to go through all of their information, making sure that you know what you're getting when you're adopting that child. So that you can read through really what is none of the good stuff, if we're honest. Um, like, I, I never got a, hey, this is when this child first started to walk or read, or this was their first word. But I got lots of, this child's been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, or this child's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, despite the fact that they're like under the age of 10. 
And so you, you get to go through it and, and kind of decide, do I want this? And I think what Paul is doing here is he's kind of unpacking some of his own sin, knowing that, that none of it is hidden from God. And that as it's set before God, God goes, yeah, I take all of it. I take all of it. And it's odd for me to stand up in front of you and, and share and preach and teach and talk about the goodness of God because honestly, I know what my box entails. I know what's in there. I know what it would look like if somebody followed me around from the point that I was born or even before I was born and walked around with my parents to look at their inefficiencies and their shortcomings and their sinfulness and then walked up to God and went, are you sure you want this guy? Because I was the kid in high school who thought sarcasm was a great way to just kind of up my way in the pecking order. And then I'd turn around and I'd berate the kids who, whose feelings were hurt and be like, don't be so soft. As if feelings were somehow a weakness. And I was the guy who was exposed to pornography from the third grade. Who spent much of his lifetime lusting after women and just continuing to kind of pursue that behind the scenes. And all at the same time, right, showing up at church on Sunday and going to camp and telling everybody like, hey, gosh, it is a slap in the face when we sin against God. And like two days later, getting home from camp and being like, let's go back to looking at porn again. I was that guy. I was once that guy. I was the father who berated his kids, who was impatient, who would give them like five things to do in a matter of seconds. And then when they didn't complete it all, get really upset. I was once that man. I just want to ask before Christ, who are you? Because in verse 14, Paul says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That word abundantly only shows up once in the entire Bible. Commentaries say they think that Paul coined this word. It's the Greek word, nadzo. There's not going to be a test on that later. Don't worry about it. You don't have to write it down. But it, it conveys this image of a cup on a table that is just poured into, and as the cup begins to overflow, there's no one to say enough, but it just continues to pour. It's in the aorist verb tense, and for those of us who aren't English uh, professors, uh, the aorist verb tense means that it's a present, active, and incomplete verb. That means it just keeps going. And so it's just continued to pour, and the water just keeps coming up over the cup and onto the table and then onto the floor, and it fills the room. And that's what grace does in our lives when God makes us new, is it is abundant and overflowing. We experience it so that we can't hold it in. It was a few years ago that we were um, hosting an event at Frank Buck Zoo. Anybody, Frank Buck Zoo up in Gainesville? Tiny little zoo. Um, we took a bunch of foster and adoptive families there. And families showed up, and we got to do like a cool kind of show and tell with some of their animals and feed giraffes and all kinds of fun stuff. And then afterwards, we went across the street to this park, and we had snacks and drinks and games and hot dogs. And at the end, I was kind of standing at this table 
um, that still had hot dogs like falling off the edges or like trying to hold it on. And this little boy came up to me and he said, hey, can I have more? And I was like, yeah, sure, we got plenty. And he took more hot dogs back and went back and sat down and I didn't think of it again. And the next day I got an email from his mom. He said, he came back to our table and he said, I got to have seconds. I got to have seconds, mom. And what's crazy about that is not only that he had never had seconds before, he had never known what it was to have enough. What's crazy about that is I said, hey, kid, and you could have come back and gotten thirds and fourths and fifths. Not only was the table overflowing, I had a whole cooler of hot dogs wrapped in foil that were still warm. And yet most of us will come in and we'll take our two hot dogs and we'll take a seat. That's good. Not realizing the abundant grace and mercy of our God who just says, where your sin increases, my grace increases all the more. Friends, you can't out God's grace. If you can, you're thinking of the wrong grace. And God just goes, it, I, I lavish it on you because I love you. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us by Christ dying for us. While we were still sinners, while our box is still filling up, Christ dies for us. God's mercy and grace make us new, and it's a mercy and grace that overflows Verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So I entered my freshman year of high school, uh, a scrawny, like 5'11 kid. And uh, I loved playing basketball and got to play uh, basketball. This is at Frisco High School when Frisco was still like just one high school, no mall, no much of anything else. Uh, Tollway didn't make its way out there or anything. And um, there's a guy who is a senior named Craig, and, and Craig could dunk, which, like, I'd only seen that on TV. And, like, when I put a trampoline down in front of my basketball goal and jumped off of it and dunked, right? Like, that's how I thought you dunked, is you got a trampoline out. Craig could actually dunk. And Craig was a senior, and so I had a lot of fun playing against Craig and learning from him and whatnot. But they asked Craig uh, some parting wisdom in our, our yearbook that year. And, and Craig's parting wisdom to the underclassmen was this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Genius. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's the main thing. And here's Paul just telling Timothy, like, hey, look, in the midst of all the false teaching that's going on, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
It's not to say that Jesus didn't do a whole lot else. Because he sits down in Luke, he opens the scrolls of Isaiah, and he, he says, look, I, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, and sight to the blind, and freedom to the captive. But in the midst of everything else that's going on around, Paul goes, don't forget to keep the main thing the main thing. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me and like you. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I've been on staff here not quite three years. And uh, when we have new staff come in, when we have new leaders come in, we typically ask, like, hey, we want to know what questions you have. We don't want to just keep doing the same things. We've always done them. And whenever you ask why we do them, we just say, well, that's the way we've always done them. And so that's why we do them. But we want to make sure that we're continually thoughtful about what Scripture says and how it directs us so that we might lead the church well. And uh, so I got to sit down in front of our, our staff at our retreat, and they just said, Bruce, what do you think of Watermark? And honestly, I didn't know you very well, uh, but I had a real cynical, critical spirit. Anybody kind of resonate? Is that in your box of the cynical, critical spirit? <laughs> I was good at it, too. And uh, I just went, look, I, I mean, here, here it is. I think Watermark seems like a really wealthy, white church full of people who love Jesus, but just don't need him that much. And what probably should have been like a bunch of people like, well, been nice knowing you. <laughs> um, instead, there is just this return of lots of smiles as, as my friends started to share their stories of salvation. My friend who was like, I was in a gang. Christ redeemed me. Another friend is, I was an adulterer. And God restored my marriage. There's another guy that said, I used to do drugs in our church parking lot before Regen. And now he has a key to every room in the building. That's nuts. I just went, that's, that's not how church operates elsewhere. Just so you know, I've been around the country. That's not how church operates. Church operates in more of like a, hey, we all kind of like come in, we shake hands, we sit down, we stand up, we sing songs, we sit back down again, we listen to the message, and we walk up to the pastor afterwards and go, that was a great message, thank you so much. And then we go and eat our lunch. And we just, you know, we're just going through the line, we're getting our two hot dogs, and we're, we're done. That's all we needed. And there are people that come here, and you may be one of them, and if you're not, I pray for you, recognize how sinful we are. Just hope for the abundant grace and mercy of God. It leads us to worship him. And so I asked some more friends, just as I was preparing for this, I was like, hey, I, like, I just, I want to hear more of your story. So just FYI, if you come up to me afterwards, don't say thank you for the message. Tell me your story of salvation, what God's done in your life. But I asked some of my friends and and some of them had like these real crazy stories that I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> you are crazy. Uh, and then some of them were like, yeah, I, God redeemed me when I was 10. And I went, that's crazy that a holy God would wait 10 years of your sinfulness piling up to redeem you. Man, that's what a patient God. 
I had one friend that really resonated. His name's Ethan. He, he helps lead front lines. And Ethan said, man, when I thought of Christians, I thought of bigots. I thought of homophobes and hypocrites, especially during election season. I thought of Republicans. All right. What'd God do in your life? He just said God started to turn him through some guys that he played sports with. And he summarizes his testimony that he shared with me with a quote from a guy named Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. God goes, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take all of it. Verse 16, but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. His immense patience, that word patience, it's apparently a preaching faux pas for you to do more than one Greek word in a message. So I won't give you the Greek, but here's the definition of that word patience. A state of remaining tranquil tranquil while awaiting an outcome. That means God's never surprised. Like you didn't sleep with your boyfriend last night and then come to church and God be like, you're here? No way. You didn't yell at your kids this morning and be like, God, let's just turn the bus around and go back home. you can't yell at your kids and then go to worship. And God's not surprised. He remains tranquil tranquil while waiting on an outcome. The other definition is a state of bearing up under provocation, which means we've poked the bear. We've gotten into the lion's cage and treated it like a kitten. We've allowed our sin to be this little toy that we kind of dabble in not realizing that when it's full grown, it means death. And yet, Paul writes in Romans 2.4, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing it is his kindness that leads you to repentance? And there are those of you that have thought, man, God's just, he's just holding this box over my head. Or if you're like me, you're just waiting for God to pull the chair out from under you just the second that you thought you could sit down and be secure. And yet God is kind and patient. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't didn't stop and pause right here knowing that there's surely someone in the room that doesn't really know who Jesus is. Maybe you've kind of dabbled in religious ideas or Maybe you read Genesis 1 through 3 and you kind of learned about the sin in Adam and Eve and then you skipped over to some passages, you know, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John about Jesus dying on a cross somewhere and then maybe you read Revelation, but you're basically biblically illiterate and just going, yeah, I mean, I believe some of this stuff, but and do you know Christ? Not about him. Do you know him? Do you know the eternal, immortal, invisible, one and only God whose mercy and grace compels us because it doesn't just make us new. It also motivates us to worship. And so 
in verse 17, it's like Paul just went, I don't think I can just continue writing and not pause and say, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And he throws an amen on the end there because it's congregational assent. It's an opportunity for me and you to go, yeah, that's who our God is. The grace that overflows in me, I can't hold it back and I don't want to. That there's this opportunity for us to worship God. And so now into the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. Man, if you don't know that, you may have just grabbed your two hot dogs and moved on. You may still be carrying your box around. And if the love and grace and mercy of God doesn't well up in you when you think about the eternal, immortal king, you may have settled for something less than what God has. And so God's mercy and grace make us new, and God's mercy and grace motivate us to worship. But they're also consequential. What I mean by that is God's mercy and grace moves us to fight faithfully. It's not just this ethereal head knowledge that we kind of walk around with and like, oh, that's a good idea in Jesus and yes and grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. And like those words have meaning. And so church, we have to remember not just who we are, but whose we are. That faith and good conscience is not just that collection of ideas, as Paul would say in verse 18, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. As you walked in, um, we had these top 10 cards sitting out. You're welcome to grab one on the way out if you didn't grab one on the way in. But I think they're just a really helpful tool to be reminded of the opportunity that we have to fight faithfully. That there are those we come in contact with, whether they're family members. I know that like for me, I've got daughters and sons that still have not given their life to the Lord. And, and every once in a while, God will just prick my heart about that. And I'll go, let's have that conversation again. And one of my daughters is, has told me like, hey, dad, I just, I don't feel like I've got it all together yet. I don't feel like I have it all together yet. I said, hey, sweetheart, God's not waiting on you to get it all together. In fact, you can't get it all together. You got this whole box of stuff that you're carrying around with you, and you need to know that God's pursuing you. God is chasing you down that you would know his abundant grace and his immense patience. And so, man, you may have some, some friends, uh, family members, you may have people you work with or a student that you sit across from at school or just saw on a screen if you're doing the whole asynchronous thing. I didn't mean to bring that back up. I know it's a wound. Um, but somebody that you have an opportunity to share the gospel with. And why do we share the gospel because it is the hope of the world. You're not going to find it anywhere else. 
In fact, Jesus' disciples were following him along, and he turns around and he's like, I'm not sure you all realize what's going on here. Because I think some of you think I came to establish a kind of limited earthly kingdom, and that's not who I am. And so he tells them this. It's in the Bible. Read it. He says, if anybody should follow after me, I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And I think some of his disciples were like, man, Jesus, we've seen you do some crazy things, but that is crazy. And they walk away. And the 12 are left. And Jesus looks at Simon Peter. He says, are y'all going to leave too? And Simon Peter says this, where else will we go? Listen, I've done my fair share of looking for alternatives and even found some that felt a little bit acceptable. But when I met Christ, I went, oh, this is altogether different. This isn't like the other things. And so we share the gospel because it's good news. It's good news. If you're a friend that got brought in here, your friends that brought you are not trying to manipulate you. They just went, look, we, we're beggars who found bread, and we're bringing other beggars in, as Martin Luther says. We're watchmen on a tower that see the sword coming, and we go, we know the way to safety. Ezekiel says that God looked for a man among them who would stand in the gap and build up the wall so we would not have to destroy the city but he found no one. Christians, pastors, that we would be courageous, that we would be moved to fight faithfully because you've got to realize that there are going to be some people on this top 10 list that you pray for, that you initiate conversations with, that you share your story with, that then you turn around and go, oh, they do not like this news. In fact, I feel like what? Why are they calling me a bigot? Why are they calling me a hypocrite? Why are they, why are they saying I'm homophobic? I'm not homophobic. <laughs> and so Paul tells Timothy in verse 20, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. These are two guys who were in the church. This wasn't like external battles. This was internal Hymenaeus is a, a guy who likely was discipled up under Paul for the three years that he was in Ephesus. And Paul leaves, and Hymenaeus continues to mature and grow, and then starts to kind of intermingle some of his pagan worship with Christianity. And he eventually begins to teach that the resurrection has already happened. And so as people are coming in wanting to hear the truth of the gospel and wanting to know that Jesus is coming back, Hymenaeus is going, he's already come back. You missed it. There's no room for you. You should go away now. And Alexander, based on some of the stuff that I've kind of interpreted admittedly on my own a bit, but he's a metal worker who does Paul great harm. And according to some of the timing of when we think 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy were written, it's likely anyway that Alexander's the guy who turned around and turned Paul in to the Romans a second time where Paul is ultimately executed. And so recognize that there's going to be opposition 
and yet we are to love our enemies. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And Paul says, I have handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, I know that there are some moms in this room that are like, wait, you can do that? <laughs> yeah, welcome desk. You can drop your husband and kids off. You just drop them off and you head out. We'll take care. That's not how it works. But there is care and correction, right? There is church discipline that says, hey, you're not following the Lord as you ought. And while we love our enemies, we don't appease false teachers, We don't water down the gospel. We don't tell you your sin's not that big of a deal. You can just keep carrying some of it along and managing some of it. You don't have to set it all at the foot of the cross and surrender to him. We don't yoke ourselves to unbelievers who encourage us to compromise a biblical worldview. God's grace and mercy move us to fight faithfully and motivate us to worship. And they make us new through a grace and mercy that are overflowing. Jesus Christ came to save sinners like me and you. How's that truth going to impact your week? What do you do with that this week? Is there somebody that God's brought into your life that you go, hey, I need to go share the gospel with them? Or is there somebody who's already in your life that you go, I think I need to confront them. I think there's conflict here that I've been avoiding. Or is there sin that's lingering in your own heart and you're recognizing, I don't know that I've really surrendered my life to Christ and really walked with him and understood that and experience that abundance that you're talking about where I might say, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And you know that king. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for my friends who hear this word this morning and maybe have forgotten that they are pastors that they are ministers of reconciliation, they are ambassadors of Christ that carry the gospel and the Holy Spirit with them. God, I pray that you would convict our hearts. I thank you that you are gracious and merciful, that you're a father who knows how to give good gifts to his kids, that you don't pile on shame but you're patient with us, that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so for those who are maybe hearing this passage for like the hundredth time and it just hadn't ever snapped with them, it hadn't ever clicked or connected, Father, I pray that they'd come forward here in a bit and have a conversation that we might share our stories of salvation that we might even unpack some of what's in our box of our sinfulness and share how God has redeemed and restored us. Father, you're a good God. We love you and we worship you now. We ask these things in the holy, powerful, able, majestic, wonderful, glorious name of Jesus Christ, the name above all names, who is the king above all kings. Amen.